Hello, and welcome to Fueling the Transition, a series of podcasts from AFree Management Consulting. My name is Matt Brown. I'm Vice President in the Management Consulting Division at AFRI, and this series of podcasts will be exploring the energy transition and the key themes and trends we see driven by decarbonization, digitalization, and decentralization. I'm really pleased today to say we have Graham Cooley with us from ITM Power. Hi, Graham. Hello, Matt. Uh, delighted to be here. Delighted that you are here. And with me also, I've got a colleague, John Williams, who uh, looks after our hydrogen expertise cluster. Hi, John. Hi, Matt. Nice to be joining you again. Very good. And I think we'd kick right off, Graham. Could you explain a little bit about ITM and your role there, please? So I'm Graham Cooley, the CEO of ITM Power. I've been the CEO now for uh, 12 years. Um, ITM powers an electrolyzer manufacturer. Um, actually, ITM moved in this year to the world's largest electrolyzer factory, uh, which has a capacity of one gigawatt per annum. That's a thousand megawatts per annum of electrolyzer production. And we're in Sheffield. Um, and my background's the power industry. I was... Um, business development manager at National Power and then International Power with a particular interest um, in energy storage. Just a, a bit of background about you, Graham. What, what's your main motivator? You know, I know you've been in the energy industry for, uh, for, for many years, a lot of experience. What is your motivation, your purpose in, uh, in, in your work or, or, or in your life in general? Yeah, interesting question. So um, I started in the power industry and was very interested in renewable power. I guess back in the day when um, uh, companies like uh, National Power and most power companies didn't believe in renewable power, I then concentrated on energy storage. Uh, particularly storing renewable power. So we built Regenesis, which was the world's largest electrochemical energy store, uh, 100 megawatt hours at Little Barford. And then I moved into other renewable technologies. And Metallasis was um, set up to extract tantalum to make supercapacitors. And, and now green hydrogen with, um, with ITM power. So my motivation has always been uh, introducing new technology, scaling that new technology so it can have an effect on the energy industry uh, um, and the energy transition in general. So what motivates me really has always been environmental issues. Uh, in fact, my parents were environmental campaigners. Ah, what sort of thing were they? Um, there must have been some time ago before before sustainability and issues around sustainability were were so mainstream quite ahead of their time i would guess yeah i think so i mean uh, my father was a trade union leader uh he was actually one of the people responsible for the lucas workers plan for converting armaments production into socially useful production including uh, a technology for the energy transition and um, and environmental um, issues uh, he won the uh, Right Livelihood Award in uh, 1981 for his work. So, uh, and my mother was an environmental campaigner as well. So, uh, yeah, a, a background throughout the whole of my life looking at environmental issues. And uh, sounds like you're quite rightly uh, proud of what your uh, your mum and dad achieved. Uh, the pride's not a word I'm particularly interested in, really. I think. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of work to do. And um, I'm not particularly proud of where the world is right now. And uh, I think we all need to put our backs into the energy transition or we've got a serious problem. Yeah, that is um, without question. I think the I'd agree. Risk of catastrophic climate change is uh, is you know ever present and growing, and there's a huge amount to do still. Uh, I know sometimes people feel like with all of the news about renewables and and hydrogen and so on that the battle's already won, but of course we're, we're really still right at the beginning of uh, of of the battle as well on that one. I think even before we start thinking about the other transitions we've got to make across um say food and agriculture for instance if uh if we're gonna be able to move to a uh, you know a much more sustainable footing yeah absolutely i mean people for years have talked about uh we will see the effect of climate change soon and we are now seeing it we're living through it right now and it is absolutely fundamental that cop 26 produces some very significant results because humanity is in a very serious position right now. Yeah, and uh, I think we all have all have hopes for uh, for COP twenty six. Let's hope uh, hope we can see some progress there. So I suppose moving on then a little bit to ITM and recent developments. I understand there were some announcements made recently by ITM. I wonder if you wanted to just fill us in on those, Graham. Sure. So we announced last week um, a funding round. Actually, we raised quarter of a billion uh, to expand our capacity. So expand our capacity from uh, one gigawatt per annum to five gigawatts per annum by 2024. First thing to say is that in the UK, we're in the world's largest electrolyzer factory with a capacity of one gigawatt per annum. That's a thousand megawatts per annum of electrolyzer manufacturing capacity. We're going to be building a second gigafactory in the UK, one and a half gigawatts per annum. And that factory will be built in parallel with with sweating the asset that we already have. And the second gigafactory will be more highly automated. And and we're implementing automation so that we can drive down costs. Uh, We will then, by the end of 23... Uh, have two and a half gigawatts um, of manufacturing capacity in the UK, um, and and we have further resources to get to five gigawatts internationally. So that's the plan. Um, we our backlog today is three hundred and ten megawatts, um, and uh, we have a tender pipeline. That's the number of um, uh, quotations we've made against international tenders of 1,011 megawatts. So that's just over a gigawatt for the first time. And I can tell you that the industry is moving incredibly quickly. In terms of the overall scale, I mean, I, John, I don't know if I can bring you in here. The um, the numbers that people talk about when we look at various plans, either European or, or UK or global, in terms of electrolyzer capacity, what sort of numbers are people talking about? Yeah, it's a good question. So in, in Europe, the EU hydrogen strategy was published last year. That has a target of 40 gigawatt of electrolyzer capacity by 2030. Uh, a number of countries have published national strategies. So countries like uh, the Netherlands, Spain, Germany, Portugal, and they have varying targets. But the most common seem to be around four to five gigawatt by 2030. 
In the UK, interestingly enough, they've published a target in the hydrogen strategy for five gigawatt but of low carbon hydrogen production capacity, which would be a mixture of both hydrogen from natural gas with CCS and green hydrogen. So, you know, for ITM to have the capacity to produce five gigawatts is pretty significant, I think. And do the, do the pipelines people talk about when we look at some of the numbers that uh, get bandied about, uh, Graham? Have you seen, um, I mean, I quite often see some big, big, big numbers that people talk about in terms of pipelines. Obviously, yeah. you're building your capacity out uh, quickly, but yeah, how do you feel about some of the numbers we see uh, sometimes? So uh, perhaps I could just add a couple of things to what John said. So uh, the EU target is 40 gigawatts by 2030, but also includes 40 gigawatts of imported green hydrogen. And that 40 gigawatt target is an electrolyzer target. If you add up all of the national schemes around the world, then the target is 150 gigawatts to 2030. A very significant number is the IEA report, which says that the world needs 3,500 gigawatts of electrolysis to get to net zero by 2050. So that's in 29 years. So if you look at that number, 3,500 gigawatts, that's 35 centuries of the production in our factory which is the world's largest. So there's some scale-up to be done. And, and if you look at the cost of a full system, uh, green hydrogen system, including uh, electrolysis in the balance of plant, that's about half a million pounds a megawatt. So 3,500 gigawatts it is around $2 trillion of market. There's some big numbers being talked about, mm-hmm. but... The ability currently of us to meet that seems uh, seems quite remote. Is that true? We're expanding to five gigawatts per annum of production, and that uh, compared with three and a half thousand gigawatts in the next twenty nine years is pretty small. But one of the key things is that when we did our fundraising, we got backing from the capital markets, and and actually uh, the capital markets now are increasingly understanding green hydrogen, uh, the importance of manufacturing electrolysis equipment around the world, and and you can't make the energy transition without the backing of the capital markets. So I feel very confident, actually, that as this market uh, uh, develops, and and it is developing incredibly rapidly now, we're on the bottom of an S-curve. And we're rapidly moving up that S-curve. And, and from what I've seen uh, from the city and the capital markets, I think we'll have their backing going forwards. And I think that's critical. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, from our perspective, we do a lot of work on transactions. And, we, you know, every day we're seeing an increasing interest from our clients wanting to understand more about hydrogen projects, more about hydrogen in general and about how they can get involved. You know, where are the good investment opportunities for them in the market at the moment? Sometimes, it, you know, currently with, you know, the still developing regulatory framework and support mechanisms, it's sometimes quite hard to find a really positive business case at the moment, but that is going to improve over time. Uh, but certainly, you know, there are lots of opportunities out there for investments in 
companies like ITM and some of the other electrolyzer manufacturers, and indeed all the other companies across the value chain, you know, producers of compressors, transformers, rectifiers, all these are going to really need to be scaled up in the, you know, the next five to 10 years really significantly. Playing devil's advocate a little bit, knowing that, say, in the UK, we have some, uh, you know, supply chain issues and generally around the world, there are issues in um, many parts of, of uh, industry and the economy. Are there any are there any concerns in terms of that scale up? Would you say over over say the next five years that we should we should be worried about? So there's an international shortage at the moment um, of chips and also steel, uh, and um, I, but I think that's temporary, and I think that will normalise. Um, you know, this is an international market; it's a global market that the whole um, of the planet has to decarbonise. And green hydrogen is a very important component in getting to net zero. Uh, so it is a global market. Not, not only are we scaling uh, the manufacturing of electrolysis modules, uh, but we formed a joint venture with Linda. Uh, that's Linda Engineering. And Linda um, are one of the world's largest uh, current suppliers of hydrogen. They're embedded in the oil and gas industry and the petrochemicals industry. And so our plans mean that not only can we scale the manufacturing, but also the deployment. And actually having the right EPC partner, that's engineering, procurement and construction partner, um, means that we can scale not only uh, manufacturing, but also the deployment. And Linda have very strong purchasing power. And I think that um, being a medium-sized company in Sheffield is one thing. But having the firepower of the likes of uh, Linda and also our partner Shell, a very important partner for us, we're building the world's largest electrolyzer at the Rhineland Refinery to make sustainable aviation fuel. We also work with um, Orsted and Philips 66. And large international companies are, are very important for ITM power when it comes to the global supply chain. So I think we feel very confident about being able uh, to scale up, not only um, from the point of view of the, the electrolysis, but also of deployment. Well, what about the what about the renewables, though, Graham? Uh, you know, because obviously we can have all the electrolyzer capacity in the world, but if we haven't got enough renewables with good load factors. It's really going to affect the, you know, the, the scale at which we can produce hydrogen. So just wondering what your view is on that. No, you, you're absolutely right, John. I mean, uh, to make low cost and large amounts of green hydrogen, you, you need high load factor, low cost renewable power. It's absolutely dominant in the cost structure of the, um, of the green hydrogen. Uh, you know, if you take the UK, for instance, we have a target it, uh, to 2030, so in the next decade deploying an additional 40 gigawatts of offshore wind, you're going to need a lot of energy storage. And the best way of storing electrons is to turn them into storable molecules. So, uh, you, you know, uh, you might look at it the other way around. You might say with all the renewables that we're going to be deploying, how are we going to uh, implement all of that energy storage? And the way you do that is with green hydrogen. So I, to me, the two industries grow in harmony together. As you increase renewable power, you need more and more energy storage. 
you need more and more rapid response demand side loads uh, to balance the network and that is electrolysis and green hydrogen so the more that you deploy together uh, the more you'll be able to deploy going forwards so you know green hydrogen actually allows you uh, uh, to have more and more renewable power on the network. So I think it's uh, growing the two industries together that's the important thing. And is there, Graham, is there in terms of, in terms of you know, ITM's role, knowing that we have probably a massive opportunity, a massive opportunity space for uh, electrolyzers, are there, other, are there other competitors of yours? Are there, you know, is this a, an area which is in some ways quite difficult to enter uh, the competitive barriers are quite high or is it something that would be um would be possible for for more and more firms to be able to help to build up that that, that supply i suppose that is the future itm becoming with fundraising and support becoming bigger and bigger and bigger obviously that's that's what you would uh, you expect but will there be other competitors as well also filling that market because it seems the space is so huge uh, that we need um, we, we need lots of ITMs. Yeah, so um, I, I think the barriers to entry are pretty high. Let, let me explain what I think they are, first of all. Um, so at ITM Power, we've been developing PEM electrolysis for the last 20 years. Uh, we've been deploying larger and larger electrolyzers over that period of time. We've spent over half a decade working with Linda and with Shell um, on deploying uh, um, uh, electrolysis, particularly on shell forecourts or refueling stations. We built most of the refueling stations in the UK. Um, every two years, uh, the, the largest electrolyzer that we have deployed has been an order of magnitude larger. So we started with uh, 100 kilowatt units, then one megawatt units, then 10 megawatt units, we're now building 100 megawatt units and we're now bidding hundreds of megawatts and the national schemes are at one gigawatt. So every two years, a scale up of an order of magnitude. That's a logarithmic growth. And we followed that with reference plant where we've gathered data. So uh, what would you need if you wanted to uh, follow what we're uh, doing and become a new entrant? Well, we've 20 years of development, reference plant in the field, data, partnerships, manufacturing capacity. We have the world's largest manufacturing capacity and backing from the City of London. Okay, that's five important things. So if you can bring all of those together, uh, then you could probably do it as a new entrant. Uh, we do have competitors around the world. And, and I would say this very simply, that all of those competitors will get projects. I mean, th this market is massive and moving incredibly quickly. Um, and I think every electrolyzer manufacturer around the world is going to be capacity constrained very rapidly. And that's why we raise money uh, for additional capacity and for working capital. Uh, and and uh, you know this this is uh, we are a company with the right products uh, in the right place at the right time. 
In terms of um, just for for some of the some of the people who are listening, the, you mentioned you know PEM electrolyzer. Are there uh, are, are there other you know uh, types of electrolyzer out there? Is PEM the the only one? PEM electrolysis is uh, are there electrolyzers that you can turn on and off very rapidly, so you can couple them to renewable power and use them for balancing the grid. They make high pressure. Uh, hydrogen. Uh, our two uh, ratings are 20 bar or 30 bar, which you need for most applications. And they may clean the hydrogen. Um, in fact, uh, because the hydrogen hasn't seen a- any carbon molecules, uh, they are actually five nines purity uh, when the hydrogen is produced. The only impurity is some moisture, uh, which is, is very easy to take out. So if you take um, uh, uh, um, the older form of electrolyzer called alkaline electrolyzers. Uh, you can't turn them on and off rapidly. Uh, you have to clean the hydrogen because it bubbles through um, a, a, an electrolyte called potassium hydroxide, which is a caustic material, um, and they produce low-pressure hydrogen. And the only advantage of alkaline electrolyzers um, in the past was that they were lower cost. And actually, now we scaled PEM electrolysis, um, and full system costs are comparable. So you have all the advantages of PEM electrolysis um, um, at, at a similar cost, full system price to the customer. So uh, uh, you know, to me, the future is PEM electrolysis without a doubt. What does PEM stand for? A polymer electrolyte membrane. So it's about having. Um, a, a physical barrier between the anode and the cathode. So an, an electrolyzer, uh, it's an electrochemical device, so it has an anode and a cathode, and you split water, and you split uh, water into hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, um, an alkaline electrolyzer has a liquid electrolyte, potassium hydroxide, and it transports OH- ions. Uh, a PEM electrolyzer has a physical barrier that absorbs the water, and that is a polymer. And that polymer has fixed acid groups, and it transports uh, protons um, across the um, electrolyzer. Protons are more mobile than OH- ions, particularly because they are a much smaller molecule and have a smaller hydration sphere. Uh, So uh, the consequence of this is that you can have very high efficiency at very high current density, which means that the electrolyzer can be compact and efficient, and it means that the um, production cost of the green hydrogen is lower for that reason. You said earlier, I I think I'm right, you said earlier um, that uh, storing electrons, the best way to do it is uh, is by making hydrogen. I'm guessing um, some of the battery... Uh, manufacturers might have a, a, a different viewpoint. I'm uh, just wondering about your perspective on, uh, on, on battery technology. I actually don't think they would have a different perspective, actually. Well, the whole energy storage industry understands how energy storage is segmented. So energy storage is segmented by time. So if you want short duration energy storage, if you want up to an hour of energy storage, you will buy a battery every time. If you want uh, um, many hours or days or months or even years of energy storage, 
you make molecules and you store them in the gas grid or you use them for industry. So you have to separate long-duration storage from short-duration storage. And actually, both industries are entirely complementary. And by the way, if you want very, very short-term energy storage, like a split second, you're going to use a flywheel or a supercap. So, so it's very well-segmented market. And perhaps if you want three hours of energy storage, you might use a flow cell. So it goes uh, uh, sub-second, uh, uh, you'd use a flywheel. A few seconds, you'd use a supercap. A few minutes to up to around an hour, use a battery. Uh, a few hours, you might use a flow cell. But above that, you'll use hydrogen every time. Well, what about, Graham, using the, the flexibility of the electrolyzers? Um, you know, because we understand, you know, you've got very, very quick reaction times in electrolyzers. So you can, you know, you can switch them on and off or switch them up and down very, very quickly indeed to provide some of that flexibility back to the grid in, in certain circumstances. You know, if you're running, you can switch down. If you're not running, you have a project, you put a fuel cell in there. You know, do you see a role for electrolyzers to offer that flexibility uh, and grid services? Very much so, yeah. Uh, it's a very good point. So, look, um, you can turn our electrolyzers on and off in less than a second. So, we, we did uh, qualify them into um, enhanced frequency response. Um, uh, uh, there's, there's a new protocol now from National Creek grid called um, uh, containment, but um, uh, 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 which is a half a second protocol, which also works with electrolysis. So uh, grid balancing then, uh, you can look at grid balancing um, uh, from the electrolyzer point of view uh, in two different ways. First of all is frequency. So the way you balance frequency on the network, by the way, frequency is the obligation of the network operator and it, it works at high voltage. So on the high voltage network, you balance frequency with a load, uh, either with a load or a generator, but in the case of an electrolyzer, a load, and you can turn the electrolyzer on and off in a split second, helping to balance frequency. Um, an electrolyzer also works in, a, in DC, and at the front end, it has an AC-DC converter, and so it can absorb leading or lagging VAR flow, which means if you're on the uh, plugged into the distribution network, uh, you can stabilize voltage by absorbing either lead, leading or lagging VAR flow. In other words, you can make the electrolyzer look like a capacitor or look like an inductor. Um, and um, so you, you've got two modes which you can operate it in. Uh, you can operate it as a flexible load or as a, a, a unit that helps you with uh, voltage stabilization. So very much so. Grid services uh, are a very important application um, of electrolysis as a demand side load. No, I'm, I'm sure, you know, a lot of the discussions that we have, but internally and also with, with clients, um, particularly, you know, A3 is a, a big global engineering with a huge process industries division, uh, and they're talking to clients all the time uh, about decarbonization and the potential to use hydrogen. Uh, now, we, we've just heard, you know, some really good examples of how you can use electrolyzers flexibly. What 
our clients are asking us is, you know, the question is, I've got a very flat hydrogen offtake demand. How can I use an electrolyzer, which is running variably depending on the renewables it's connected to? How can I use that to meet my flat demand? So, so when you look at industry, uh, uh, um, of course, 70 million tonnes per year of hydrogen is sold into industry. Uh, that's grey hydrogen made uh, with uh, natural gas. And that's the entry market um, because that is they are the demand centres. So we're, we're very interested in placing electrolysis equipment at refineries or for methanol, ammonia production or um, for the, the steel and metals fabrication um, industry. So what is, once you've decided that that's where you're going to put the electrolyzer, what can industry do with it? So say you have got a flat demand for, for um, hydrogen. Um, how does that help you in terms of good balancing? So uh, first thing to say is if you have a long-term contract for renewable power, and you're making green hydrogen to replace grey hydrogen, you could do that today at a lower cost than grey hydrogen, so long as you have the right electricity price. So um, uh, it, it, everybody used to tell me that required electricity around two and a half cents per kilowatt hour. Um, actually, uh, that's not the case anymore because the cost of natural gas has gone up so significantly um, you can make green hydrogen today at a lower cost than industrial hydrogen because of the gas price. So that's the first point to make. A second point to make is that grid services are about grid balancing. You can also use an electrolyzer for load balancing. So let me explain load balancing. If you're an industrial user, a very large user of electricity, um, you buy electricity in a band, so you have an upper limit and a lower limit. So your contract says you'll get electricity at a particular price, so long as you don't go over a particular usage or under a particular usage. You have a lower band and an upper band. And what you can do with the electrolyzer is protect yourself uh, from going below the lower band or above the upper band. So as you approach the upper band running an electrolyzer, you can turn the electrolyzer off and vice versa if you approach the lower band. And, and industrial users always know the time of day that they approach the upper band or the lower band. So one of the key applications in industry is to run an electrolyzer uh, constantly. And then as you approach the upper band or the lower band, store the hydrogen or used use the stored hydrogen uh, so it is about operating your electrolyzer and operating hydrogen storage so that the flexibility of demand is on the electrolyzer rather than on the industrial plant and absolutely absolutely and where we've developed a, a very neat um configuration optimizing tool that can do all that in conjunction with all our power market projections but the the question thing coming back to is that's fine if you're connecting an electrolyzer to the grid but if you're connecting an electrolyzer to the grid how do you ensure that your hydrogen is green you know we still haven't got a classification system in europe or in the uk 
uh, if the carbon intensity of the grid is more than, you know, just more than zero, so you've got some fossil fuels in the generation mix, surely if you're using that grid power, your hydrogen isn't then green. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And and um, the purest green hydrogen and certainly uh, red two, uh, a renewable energy directive two, qualified green hydrogen requires you to di directly couple to renewable power. And that is the requirement now. But the requirement going forwards uh, will be that you'll be able to connect to the grid and buy a renewable energy contract. And that then uh, means that more renewable energy contracts will be sold, allowing more and more renewable power onto the network. So um, I, I think that um, uh, there's a lot of legislation going through at the moment about being able to make a green uh, renewable hydrogen via the PPA route. A um, couple of things I would add as well. If you look at our project in Humberside, which is connecting 100 megawatts of electrolysis to Hornsey 2, which is a 1.4 gigawatt offshore wind farm, um, the wind farm has a load factor of 55%. Uh, but if you connect 100 megawatts to a 1.4 gigawatt wind farm, you actually get a load factor on the electrolyzer of well over 80%. Um, and the reason for that is that the, when um, that 55% is an average, uh, and, and if the, your first slice of power generation is the electrolyzer, then the load factor looks well over 80%. So you can get high load factors uh, by connecting a smaller load to a larger generator. So that's the first point I'd make. Second is sleeving. So uh, you, you can connect directly to uh, high load factor renewable power and then only have a, a, a small percentage uh, being grid connected power and you can very easily switch between the two. So I think three strategies are direct coupling, PPA route and sleeving. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's right. And for us, you know, certainly in all the analysis that we've done, um, looking at uh, you know hydrogen production cost, the higher the load factor you can get the electrolyzer, you know, the 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 much cheaper you you can produce the hydrogen and make it much more competitive. So anything that can be done to improve that utilization of the electrolyzer, we think is absolutely great. Um, you know, you mentioned Red Two there. We we saw one of the earlier drafts of Red Two uh, that talked about you know having a PPA with renewable power, fine, but then talked about temporal and geographic correlations, so that the electrolyzer, even under the PPA, would need to be operating. I think at that point within a fifteen-minute window of the power being generated, uh, and that seemed to us, you know, on on a first sight, to be quite restrictive. Um, I don't know if you've got any insight into whether that temporal correlation is being relaxed or whether we'll end up with a you know much wider window. So I think temporal correlations are all about um, knowing what type of uh, renewable you're using. Um, is it solar or is it wind? Uh, is it uh, geothermal? Is it hydro? Um, and actually the correlation is all about as more and more renewable power comes on the network, having are turning on more and more loads. So, so let, let me tell you what I think the correlation is between more renewables and more load. Um, 
you know, as renewables come onto the network, um, it, the network it, it experiences uh, higher and higher frequency. You have you you get rising frequency, and the way you compensate using a load for rising frequency is turn on the load. Falling frequency, you turn off a load, and, and so there's a strong correlation between high levels of renewable power on the network and the requirement for demand side management. And turning on loads, so I think there is a correlation between the two. Uh, I think 15 minutes is quite a wide window, actually. I think if you're uh, doing genuine grid balancing, it's um, primary grid balancing is one second, and secondary grid balancing is going to be anywhere from four seconds out to two minutes. Uh, so that uh, that sounds to me like quite a wide window and an acceptable one if you're an electrolyzer manufacturer, very, very easy to turn off in those sort of timescales. But what, one other point about RED2, if you don't mind, RED2 requires all refineries in Europe to make 14% of their product renewably by 2030. And, and, and this is why we see such strong traction for electrolysis equipment at refineries. Um, you know, refineries are one of the largest users of hydrogen worldwide, and Red 2 gives them that obligation. So this is why the Rhineland Refinery Project with Shell, which is 100 megawatts of electrolysis, is such an important reference plant um, for us. You know, if you look at the UK and you look at uh, coupling electrolysis to uh, the, the distribution network, uh, far more of the cost of the electricity going into the electrolyzer is distribution charges than it is generation charges. So one of the reasons that direct coupling is incredibly important is you don't pay the distribution charges. And uh, that makes a huge difference to the cost of the green hydrogen. Sure, Hannah. I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned the UK because I wanted to come on to ask you or, or you know, have some discussion about the UK hydrogen strategy. As I mentioned right at the start, um, UK has set itself an ambition, not a target, an ambition for five gigawatt of hydrogen production capacity by 2030. Uh, but the UK is adopting what it calls a twin track approach, where that hydrogen production target will be both blue and green. Uh, and looking at some of the industrial clusters and the hydrogen production targets for blue hydrogen in those does it leave much room for green hydrogen um, and then coming on from that do you do you think the uk is missing an opportunity to put more emphasis on green hydrogen rather than blue yes and um, a, a, a great question so i've been saying for a decade to the uk government that blue hydrogen is oil and gas business as usual um, it uses uh, the existing uh, natural gas infrastructure, which leaks. And, and if we're going to produce hydrogen from a leaky uh, natural gas infrastructure, then we should be booking the emissions uh, from the uh, infrastructure to the kilograms of hydrogen. Uh, you make hydrogen uh, by reforming natural gas and CCS, um, and the capture isn't complete. You can't get complete CO2 capture. Um, and the, the technology for CCS hasn't been scaled up and isn't proven. Um, and when you do uh, blue hydrogen, it, you need a CO2 infrastructure, a separate hydrogen infrastructure, 
and you need to continue running a natural gas infrastructure. And it's incredibly expensive and you need to do very large schemes. Um, and then my final point would be you're storing CO2 in a depleted oil well and you're going to be doing that uh, for a very long period of time. And um, um, green hydrogen, uh, by the mid-2020s, um, uh, will be lower cost than uh, blue hydrogen, um, regardless um, of where we are with, with gas prices. Um, and the point here is that gas prices are going up, not down. Um, and, and so I think you'll find that any CCS schemes that have been developed will be stranded assets. Um, so I don't know who's going to take the liability on, on, on all those CO2 stores, and I don't see why we should be paying for massive CCS schemes that are going to be stranded assets in a very short period of time. Um, green hydrogen, on the other hand, you can build it in a modular way. You can start the decarbonisation journey immediately, and you don't produce any CO2 in the first place. So there's no need for any storage. Um, why are the government doing blue hydrogen as well as green hydrogen? Well, I think the oil and gas industry has had a, a, an incredibly strong lobby um, over the years. And I think that the UK government, particularly after the announcement from the EU, that they're only doing green hydrogen and all around the world, every other nation is only doing green hydrogen. I think the penny is dropping in the UK. And, and I was actually delighted that the hydrogen strategy um, was announced uh, by Kwasi Kwarteng, the Secretary of State, um, on the day that he opened uh, ITM Power's Gigafactory in Sheffield. It was a great endorsement of green hydrogen in the UK. Do you not think, I mean, because I mean, we... We've tended to be colour agnostic when we've talked about hydrogen in a lot of the work that we've done because we can see the benefits of, you know, the benefits of green obviously are clear. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, there are green hydrogen projects being deployed today, which can make a difference right now. Um, blue hydrogen is going to take a number of years before it can achieve any kind of scale in production. So mid 2020s at the earliest. Uh, but then there's a potential for blue hydrogen to be scaled up quicker so we can start to replace grey hydrogen. We can then start to use that blue hydrogen in other applications in transport, for instance. Um, so it can play a role in the scale of production of hydrogen so we can start to remove the emphasis on grey hydrogen and on diesel or whatever the application is. Do you not see there's a benefit in allowing that earliest production of hydrogen at scale, even if it is from natural gas? No, I, John, I, I don't buy that argument at all. So I used to be in the power industry and everyone used to tell me you could never scale solar and wind. And that's why those uh, power companies didn't start. And actually, when the industry started and the deployment started, the costs came down as the volumes went up and it, and they, it happened very quickly. And, and um, uh, you know, uh, I, I suppose the, the, the simplest answer to all of this is that green hydrogen will be lower cost than blue hydrogen and, and it will be simply be market forces uh, that mean that green hydrogen will be dominant. 
and and uh, we, we'd like to see strategy to kickstart the industry. That's the government's bit. But you will see volumes rapidly increase, prices rapidly come down, and um, uh, uh, any blue hydrogen schemes, in my view, will be stranded assets. So uh, the scale argument, uh, 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 it's, we're scaling very rapidly. Uh, I, I talked to you about one gigawatt per annum of manufacturing capacity uh, expanding to five gigawatts per annum. We're not the only electrolyzer manufacturer in the world and, and, and scale up is rapid. The technology is modular. CCS isn't modular. Um, and um, uh, the, the modules are deployed by an EPC contractor in Linda Engineering that deploy crackers uh, of huge volume. So I, I have uh, no doubt in my mind that electrolysis can scale. Okay, can I just come back to something you mentioned previously as well about natural gas grids? What do you think the potential is for the conversion of natural gas networks, so onshore transmission and distribution? Um, and then think about that in relation to the discussion that's going on. Again, it's a bit UK-centric, um, but the discussion that's going on uh, about the use of hydrogen in domestic heating. Do you think that is an argument that isn't just going to be won by the by the hydrogen guys, by the natural gas guys? Do you think the days of gas or hydrogen networks is just not going to happen? Uh, so another great question, John. Thank you. So um, uh, one of our strategic investors is SNAM, which is one of the largest gas transmission companies um, in the world, a second largest, second only to Gazprom. Um, and, and they're very vocal about green hydrogen and converting the European gas grid uh, to green hydrogen. Um, and um, uh, the uh, EU, of course, has developed the Hydrogen Backbone Project, of which National Grid in the UK um, are a partner. Um, and all over the world now, we see gas transmission and distribution operators looking at converting the natural, natural gas grid to green hydrogen. Uh, why would you want to do that? So first of all, that infrastructure exists. And, and of course, gas and, and energy gases are a more efficient way of, of transmitting energy uh, than copper and electrons. Uh, so that's the first point. Second point is, it, it, even if you just look at the UK, um, the gas grid is larger than the electricity grid, actually about, uh, uh, on average, three times the size in the UK, and during the winter transmits about five and a half times the energy that the electricity grid does. Um, we used to have 60% hydrogen in our gas grid in the UK when we ran town gas. So uh, we, we um, and gas operators uh, over the years have been very successful about operating gas grids with other energy gases and particularly across your um, high gas and low gas. Um, the trials all over the world have shown that you can put 20% hydrogen into the existing gas grid and not change any end user devices. So that's 20%. That is the first threshold. Uh, next threshold for the gas grid itself, the pipes, is going to 60%, which is where we used to be with town gas. Uh, in that case, you do need modification of end user devices. 
and then ultimately you could go to 100%. Question is, how do you run a gas grid with 100% hydrogen? Well, you need some sleeving. Um, now, very interestingly, people haven't linked the two arguments, but all over Europe and all over the world, sleeving is essential anyway because gas grids leak and they need to be sleeved. And so what the um, gas industry is looking at is sleeving those pipes with gas with hydrogen uh, compliant piping. So uh, the energy transition uh, requires every gas operator, every gas distribution and transmission company to put something that is net zero through their pipes. And frankly, if they don't have a net zero solution, then they won't have a business. So you will have all of those companies, their own gas infrastructure, um, uh, with a, a very strong driving force to adopt green hydrogen because it's the only net zero energy gas. So, so in terms of, say, let, let, let's look forward, I don't know, 15, 20 years. So we've started to see the take-up of hydrogen at scale in industry. Um, we're starting to develop some uses in transportation, you know, in heavy trucks, uh, maybe in maritime with hydrogen or, or as ammonia. Um, let's come back to the question about heat. Um, but from what I understood you were saying earlier on, um, is that you could connect electrolyzers to the grid, which means you could co-locate them near demand. Um, would you, if you go that route, do you need a gas infrastructure? Can you just produce all the hydrogen near the demand so you don't need the NTS, you don't need a, a gas distribution network? I, I don't think so. I think for economies of scale, it's better to have very large electrolysis connected to the transmission network, uh, the, the electricity transmission network, or in fact, directly coupled to renewable power. Uh, you use them then for grid balancing and load balancing, uh, and then you use the gas infrastructure. Uh, uh, small electrolysis connected to the low voltage network uh, doesn't give you the network advantages. You know, the, the reason that heat pumps are difficult is that you connect them to the low voltage network, which is underground, and you have to uh, dig up the roads, uh, dig up people's gardens uh, uh, to reinforce the low voltage network. You put electrolysis on the high voltage network, you use it for the use them as a flexible load for grid balancing, absorbing renewable power. Then you have real joined up thinking between the electricity grid and the gas grid, uh, you know, so called uh, a sector coupling. And I think that's the way of running the network. By the way, um, if you use the gas grid, to transmit green hydrogen. You can also use green hydrogen for power generation, and it gives you a steam cycle. Uh, now, now, why do you need a steam cycle? This is getting onto a slightly different topic, but uh, I believe that you need um, uh, some steam cycles, uh, and, and that would be either gensets working on hydrogen or nuclear. And the reason you need them is that you need grid inertia. Uh, we, the, the National Grid works in AC. Uh, and actually, I don't believe in synthetic inertia 
I think you need big rotating machines uh, to give the network inertia. So I would say renewable power, green hydrogen in the gas grid, and using some of it uh, for power generation as as well as most of it for heat. It sounds like a, quite a lot of hydrogen, and I don't know whether you've done the numbers um, from your end, Graham, in terms of how much renewables, how much wind and solar, and um, is that, or or is it that we'll be importing from Saudi Arabia, who obviously have big plans to become a major hydrogen exporter in in the future? Yeah. Okay, so look, I, I said earlier that I um, that one of the key advantages of uh, renewable hydrogen is that uh, green hydrogen is that when you use electrolysis, uh, uh, you uh, you can store electrons as molecules and net zero molecules, and it, and you know the world only uses energy in two forms: it uses it in the form of electrons or in the form of molecules. And the only way of producing a net zero molecule is to split water with net zero electrons. Now, the consequence of having stored renewable energy in a molecule is not it is then that you can transport it. So what you're able to do then is make a, a liquid fuel like ammonia or methanol. You can put it in a tank and you can transport it from one side of the world to another. So what you now have is a tradable commodity derived from renewable energy. So if you're uh, in, in British Columbia and you make hydro, you can export that renewable energy to Japan. And you do that by making a molecule uh, that you either uh, use as liquid hydrogen or you use as ammonia or methanol. And you can put it on a ship and you can uh, uh, transport it around the world in exactly the same way we do with LNG. Right? So not only if now have you stored renewable power, but you can trade it worldwide. And I think this it is a fantastic proposition for the world because some uh, places in the world have, a, have a, a, a richness in renewable resources and others don't. And it makes it a, a, a renewable energy, a tradable commodity. So I think that is the ultimate proposition for renewable power is to make it a global thing rather than a localized thing mm. but it it does have implications i suppose in terms of you know certainly years ago renewables were seen as uh, one way of uh, having having a a form of local security of supply for energy uh, and um it would have implications for for you know those countries which were having to import large amounts of of uh, green hydrogen in this in this scenario, I guess, in terms of, it, 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 but also perhaps in terms of diversity of supply uh, and diversity of yeah. uh, in that way. So I, I mean, obviously there are solutions for that um, because we, we we face that in different ways already. But I think it's an implication one would uh, one would take away. Yeah, I, I agree with that. If you've got renewable energy resources and you can make your own fuel from those renewable energy resources, then you get fuel security and you also get an improved balance of payments because you're not importing fuel. 
So that it has those two advantages. But then you also have an exportable product as well. So it gives you all three of those things. I you know, just comment on you know the the argument about the fuel security. I, I think you know is is a really significant one. If you look at you know countries like Japan, South Korea. Uh, are really investing heavily in developing a hydrogen economy. Um, however, they're not necessarily rich in renewable resources, so they they will be replacing you know an oil import and gas import dependency on a hydrogen import dependency. Uh, might change the countries that they're importing from, which they feel more secure about. Um, but it does you know in certain countries it, it still lead to an import dependency. Um, also, the case in Europe, you know, a country like Germany in there announced targets for hydrogen deployment in industry, et cetera, are setting themselves up for a pretty significant import dependency. Um, you know, and, and there are a number of MOUs and LOIs that the German government have now, has now started signing, you know, with Middle East countries, uh, with Chile, uh, with Namibia recently. Uh, so the the growth of, and the potential for this global trade in hydrogen and ammonia is really significant, really interesting. I think going forward. Yeah, John, I entirely agree with that. And if you look at the UK, we've got one of the world's richest um, offshore wind resources. Uh, we can be a producer of fuel mm-hmm. uh, that can be uh, sold internationally. Uh, I think it's an incredibly important industrial proposition that the UK government should be much more supportive of. But how many gigawatts of offshore wind do we need just to just to replace the, the heating load in the UK? That's my, my question. I, I imagine it's a, a vast amount compared to what we've uh, invested in today. So um, in the UK, there's 300 terawatt hours of energy flowing through the electricity grid and over 800 terawatt hours flowing through the gas grid. And we use about 650 terawatt hours of fuel. So uh, you can use the rule, uh, um, Matt, one, two, three. So if you, if you take 300 terawatt hours as the electricity grid as one, then the fuel industry is twice the size and the gas industry or heat effectively is three times the size. So you need a lot of renewable power. Um, uh, if you take uh, the target of having 40 gigawatts of offshore wind um, in the next decade, and you compare that with uh, our uh, electricity peak in the UK. During COVID, actually, our electricity peak in the UK was just under 50 gigawatts. Uh, that peak was the lowest it had ever been, 50 gigawatts. When I was at school, it used to be 62 gigawatts. Um, so planting off uh, uh, up with 40 gigawatts of offshore wind uh, compared with that uh, instantaneous peak, it's very clear that we're going to need a huge amount of energy storage, and that is green hydrogen. Just some numbers we we ran on the back of the EU hydrogen strategy. So for the the million tonnes of hydrogen, which is around about 40 terawatt hours, I think, we think you'd need probably about... 10 to 12 gigawatt of offshore wind uh, to hit the 10 million ton target in 2030. You're probably looking in the region about 100 to 120 gigawatt of offshore wind. Obviously, if that's onshore or solar, then the capacity might be higher. But, you know, it, it is a significant 
amount of renewables, which is needed also at the time that you're investing in renewables to decarbonize the power sector as demand stands at the moment. Uh, so, you know, coming back to a comment I made earlier, you know, I, I really don't think we can underestimate the amount of investment that is required in, in renewables. Uh, it really is significant alongside, you know, what is required in electrolyzer investments to scale up manufacturing, um, but also in the rest of the value chain as well in terms of transportation, whether that's via energy and grids or whether it's via molecules in transport in gas networks. You know, the, the the scale of the challenge, the scale of the investments is is quite staggering. Uh, but, you know, having said that, what we need to think about is the cost of doing nothing. Uh, and I think we all agree that we can't do nothing. We've got to face this challenge head on. We've got to make these investments. Uh, it seems quite clear that energy prices for end users are going to be more expensive in the future uh, compared to today. But when you look at alternative scenarios for hitting net zero, what we need to do is compare those future scenarios against each other rather than comparing them against today. I just asked John, uh, in terms of energy prices right today, maybe uh, maybe a slightly different uh, perspective um, in terms of where energy prices have gone at the moment. Could, could I provide the other side of uh, the equation uh, for John, which I'm sure he knows, which is that today uh, we import half of all of our natural gas. And, and John's been talking about the large investment required for renewables and electrolysis without mentioning uh, that we import half of all of our natural gas in the UK. So you have to net one off against the other. And that's a huge expenditure every year as well. Um, now, the next thing you have to consider is what happens when the world eventually values carbon and puts a carbon price. Uh, that price of, it, of importing half of all of our natural gas is going to go up even more. Um, and so you're netting off even more investment every year um, into a capital investment in equipment that will last for many years, producing our gas domestically in a renewable way. So uh, many people in the industry love the idea of frightening the general public with the um, investments that are required without realizing what uh, without uh, stating what the savings are so perhaps i can tell you that the savings are not importing natural gas which is carbonizing and will be subject to a carbon tax and, and, and you know I, I think that's a that's a very good point I, I wasn't arguing it from the point of you know let's go a let's keep a natural gas uh, or let's go a natural gas route only uh, you know, is just stating the fact that, you know, the investments will be significant, you know, whatever pathway you choose. Yeah. And ultimately, in the long term, the savings, the savings will be huge. Just out of a point of interest, how long does uh, is the lifetime of an electrolyzer, Graham? The full balance of plant um, is, um, has a similar lifetime to uh, a, a conventional gas plant. Um, electrolysis uh, stacks themselves more than 10 years. Uh, but we, we, um, what we do at ITM Power is we monitor all of our electrolyzers in the field uh, and, and we do continuous uh, maintenance and also recycling. 
So recycling and reuse is incredibly important. We're developing a circular economy for electrolysis uh, so that, you know, one of the things about uh, PEM electrolyzers is you can demount them, uh, you can change out parts of the stack, or you can replace or reuse them. So I I, I think uh, very long is the answer. Okay. And and is that, you know, I mean, I think we've seen um, early on with with other technologies, people had what turned out to be fairly conservative views of lifetime. Uh, when I think about solar PV or wind, um, you know, I think especially with solar, we've seen we've seen performance and lifetimes better than than originally expected. Yeah. Do you expect a similar thing with uh, with your electrolyzers? We're interested in the total cost of ownership. So what we're interested in doing uh, is being able to uh, reuse and recycle, uh, but also increase longevity as well. And I think that's very, very important. We're also spending some time now uh, looking at the uh, amount of embedded carbon in producing the equipment, which I think um, has been a debate in the renewable energy industry. Of course, um, as the whole network decarbonizes, then the power that you use to produce your product, the steel that's embedded in it, uh, all of the materials that are embedded in it, uh, the carbon footprint of those comes down. But, but I think uh, the two important principles, uh, particularly for our own, our own ESG credentials, um, are the amount of embedded carbon in the, in the capital equipment that is used and also the way that you apply a circular economy to that equipment. One of the things we, we haven't um, touched on that I just wanted to get your view on, Graham, was um, – the type of support that governments can give. Uh, and obviously we've seen, you know, in a number of countries, promises being given for support for the CapEx for projects. In other countries, we've heard some discussions about carbon contracts for difference. Uh, and I just wonder whether you've got a view on what you think would be the most appropriate support mechanism to try and encourage the switch from I guess existing hydrogen production to green hydrogen production, or from to encourage new uses. You know whether it's hydrogen being used for heat, hydrogen being used in steel, hydrogen being used in transport. Yeah, a great question, John. So um, I would say first of all uh, that it, for any use case, you have a business model, and um, to make uh, electrolysis and green hydrogen investable, uh, the business model needs to work. And that's a revenue model. So you put a capital asset on the ground uh, and, and um, it's then dependent on you having a positive revenue model. Um, and if you look at green hydrogen, uh, the uh, business model is dominated by the cost of the renewable power, uh, by the um, uh, efficiency and performance of the electrolyzer and not the capex. So what you want is a CFD, not a capital grant. Um, now, uh, there are circumstances, uh, uh, particularly smaller electrolysis that may be used for transport, where capital grants are very useful in the early days. But actually, you want a capital grant, but you want an RTFO, that's a Renewable Transport Fuels Obligation. Or in the case of grey hydrogen for industry, replacing it with green hydrogen, a CFD. And what that will do is drive volume, which will drive down prices. Um, 
What you always want with an incentive scheme is one that that uh, brings in uh, investment into the industry, um, and then you want one that drives the industry to volume and cost reduction to the point where there's no need for the subsidy anymore. So it's all about having a smart subsidy that drives the industry forwards, that can wither away within a decade. And, and, and that's what I've always said to the UK government. Make it smart, make it drive the industry forwards, in, increase scale, decrease costs, and then it, you only need it for, for a short period of time. Uh, and then market forces will take over. Yeah. Do you think governments are moving quickly enough? Some governments are. The UK government isn't. Um, I, I think that, um, I mean, uh, if you look at the amount of money that has been made available for um, for green hydrogen in the UK, first of all, there's the um, Low Carbon Hydrogen Fund, which is £240 million. Uh, That yep. is spread between uh, blue hydrogen and green hydrogen. And there's a, a CFD which will be implemented in 2023, which is 100 million. Um, we just raised 250 million on the London stock market, <laughs> and we were two and a half times oversubscribed. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that if you look at Germany, with 9 billion available uh, for uh, hydrogen projects over the next decade, and if you look at um, 150 billion across Europe, you can see that the UK government, the UK government, first of all, doesn't have a significant enough vision for hydrogen or green hydrogen, and I think has not really understood the opportunity. Yeah, and I, I think this week in the net zero strategy, there was, I think, 100 million to support 250 megawatt of electrolyzer capacity by 2023 which, you know, doesn't seem that ambitious. No, I mean, we, we bid, over the last 12 months, uh, we bid uh, 1,011 megawatts um, of projects. We have a backlog of 310 megawatts of projects already. And across just three projects, we bid 560 megawatts of equipment. So some of our projects that we're bidding, so this is... Uh, turnkey fixed price quotations against commercial tenders. Some of them are multi hundred megawatt already. We, we are deploying electrolyzers uh, that are an order of magnitude larger um, every two years. This is logarithmic growth. Um, 200 megawatts in 2023, we will have missed the boat. So which, um, which countries... Are getting it right. You mentioned Germany. Um, what about the Netherlands? Are they are they taking a good approach? Obviously, they've got the SD plus plus mechanism, which you know some say is good, some say isn't really working for electrolysis. Are there any other countries you think are really kind of leading the way? Yeah. So if if you look at um, national strategies and targets, uh, there's about 150 gigawatts of national targets out there. That's electrolyzer targets. It's all green hydrogen. The UK is the only place that is considering blue hydrogen. Um, so if you look at those targets, then six and a half gigawatts in France, five gigawatts in Germany, five gigawatts in Italy, four gigawatts in Spain, two and a half gigawatts in Portugal. So Europe doing really well. Chile, 
25 gigawatts to 2030. All of those targets, by the way, are 2030 targets, and they're all electrolyzer targets. Chile, 25 gigawatts. Why is it so big in Chile? Well, actually, Chile has very high load factor, very low-cost renewable power. It's a great place to make renewable ammonia and export it. Um, if you look at the US, the US just announced the Earthshot. Um, so this is, there are five projects in the US to propel the US to net zero. They called them the Earthshots, and the first one announced was green hydrogen, uh, backed by the DOE and actually announced by John Kerry. Uh, very significant emphasis on green hydrogen for the energy transition. Australia, moving incredibly quickly. You look at Japan and you look at Korea, a developing end-use uh, technology uh, uh, devices um, and industries with a strategy to import from all over the world. So uh, um, it, it's uh, an industry uh, that is focused on green hydrogen, electrolyzer targets, all of them are gigawatts in size. So, uh, you know, we have developed a, a five gigawatt strategy in the UK and 40 gigawatts of offshore wind. And if you look at Boris's 10 point plan, five of those 10 points have relevance to hydrogen. The offshore wind one, uh, the five gigawatt target, sustainable marine and aviation fuel, low emission buses, and CCS. Um, and my hope is that. Um, uh, the market forces will show the, the UK government that green hydrogen and energy storage is the way of doing things rather than blue hydrogen. Well, it's been a delight having you on, Graham, and hearing about all the developments on uh, on electrolyzers, green hydrogen and uh, ITM power. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to all your listeners for listening. And John, uh, thank you very much for some great questions. Yeah, thanks very much, John. Thank you very much. A pleasure as always to talk with you, Graham. Well, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Please subscribe to listen to more in our series, Fueling the Energy Transition from A-Free Management Consulting. Thanks and goodbye. Goodbye.